At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Right now on Fast, the great rate breakdown. Ten-year yields touching the 3% mark, dropping nearly 50 basis points in a matter of days. What does this massive move mean? And is this a good thing or a bad thing for stocks? Plus, we're all over the after-hours action in shares of FedEx. The company's conference call just kicking off at the top of the hour. We are dialed in. We'll bring you all the details. And a big sea change for value stocks with the newest additions to the Russell Value Index say about their growth prospects and the state of the market. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and Tim Seymour. Well, that's his chair. He'll pop in any minute now. But we start off with the latest Fed stress test, the results crossing the tape within the last hour. Leslie Pickers got all the details. Leslie is, in fact, there, I believe. Leslie? Hey, Melissa. Yes, the banking system looks resilient and well-capitalized with all banks tested coming in above the minimum requirements outlined by the outlined by the Fed this year. The 33 firms suffered a hypothetical $600 billion plus in losses under the Fed's severe scenario, but still maintained capital levels more than double the regulatory threshold. Now, the aggregate common equity capital ratio metric that represents the financial health of the banking system declined to 9.7% under this year's test. Among the largest banks identified as Category 1 by the Fed, states Street and Morgan Stanley demonstrated the highest ratios, while Bank of America and Goldman had the lowest below the aggregate, but well, well above the Fed's threshold. This year's stress test scenario comprised a severe global recession plus turmoil in the commercial real estate and corporate debt markets. It was tougher than the 2021 test with a peak 10% unemployment rate and GDP decline and a 55% slump in equity prices. The firms are expected, although not required, to announce their specific plans for buybacks and dividends on Monday aftermarket, which is the key part of this test that investors will be paying very close attention to. Melissa? All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Pickerel, thanks for having a pretty rough day even before these results came out. Really not many surprises here. Guy, what did you think? Well, I look at it and say, I think we all would acknowledge that these banks had their balance sheets in good order. I don't Mm -hmm. think that was a surprise. I find it fascinating that on a day that Deutsche Bank, one of the biggest banks in Europe, is down 11 percent. We're talking about this. That's something we have to keep in mind because I think there is a contagion out there. With that said, I think banks set up okay into the next couple weeks in earnings because my view of the broader market is we have a significant rally, I believe, in our midst over the next week, two weeks. So nothing stuck out to me. I'll say this. The Goldman buyback of $7.5 billion given a market cap they have is pretty interesting to me. I think Goldman sets up pretty well here. So I agree with Guy generally on the banks. Obviously, I'm long banks. Um, The one thing that I think, you know, we talked about last quarter and we'll Mm -hmm. see again this quarter is the adjustment that they need to make. It's sort of a book uh, hit in that the assets that they own as rates go up, the mark to market goes down. And so that doesn't leave them as much of a cushion for capital for redeployment, either in dividends and buybacks. I would think all of them would absolutely rather maintain their dividend, of course, 
because that's what shareholders really want, that certainty. So that, that will happen. And I think and then so less room for buybacks. But the big question is just going to be what do they see in the economy? I don't know that people will care what happened this quarter, which I think was probably OK, mm-hmm. uh, other than that mark to market. So it's really a question of, you know, we're going to see Jamie Dimon again talking about the weather as, you know, storm right. clouds, hurricane. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, to me, the valuation J.P. Morgan here sets up for a lot of bad news. Yeah, and and I don't know if it's just about what they're going to say or about what the performance or the lack of performance of the whole group is saying about the economy. If that, you know, go back and look at J.P. Morgan, for example. It made a new all-time high. The last all-time high it made was in late October, you know, right right around um, the end of Q3. And I think they were kind of signaling at least investors in these names that they did get expensive, that they did have the tailwind of the reserve releases. And now I think what they're saying is, is to Guy's point, is like, okay, where do you have exposure? Is it if energy came back in, if there was some credit situation, um, you know, in in Europe? I mean, who knows? You know, what sort of exposure do you have to, to, to Asia? And so... To me, they don't act particularly well. The other one is obviously the U.S. consumer. And you saw that J.P. Morgan laid off or, or going to reassign and lay off about 1,000 people in their mortgage group. So to me, I think the underperformance and their inability to keep pace, even with the um, S&P 500, says something more about the broader um, you know, macro uh, backdrop. I agree that everybody's going to be listening very carefully to what the CEOs will say on those conference calls, particularly Jamie Dimon. And if he's going to narrow it down from you know, between Category 1 and Category 5 to somewhere, you know, more in the range of 1 or 2. Um, but, Tim, I would, I would posit that it's the yield curve. I mean, we've seen an extraordinary flattening just recently even um, with the spike higher in the two-year and the, the coming in of the 10-year. But is, is the flat yield curve the – and here where, where I go here in meteorology circles, is that the cumulonimbus <laughs> – of, of the death trap for banks. It's not. And, and so I think we've priced in a flatter yield curve. I think we've priced in uh, fee income hits. And I think that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about mortgage fee income. We're talking about investment banking. Uh, but we're talking about banks that are trading 40% light to where they were in February. I mean, Bank of America, uh, you know, 38% down since Feb 20. And, and I think the banks did a great job of resetting expectations. And, and, and I think even where consensus estimates will be on 2Q. So I think we all want to hear this view. I think we've all collectively said we don't even think you're getting real EPS downgrades until we have a chance to hear from second quarter earnings across some some places outside of banks. Uh, but the valuations are compelling. And, and I, I uh, the one place where banks concern me a bit is what was a catalyst to banks was the capital return profile. And Karen's referenced this. And I just wonder if they're going to have to be a little bit more cautious here. And I don't think investors are going to like that. Tim brings up a really important point, which is we have this idea that banks should trade with a two-year, 10-year spread. And that is not the way their books are set up at all. I get that. Yes. Doesn't matter if the market thinks that <laughs> right, they're right, us. Exactly. That's the second part of it. Right. It doesn't matter. But, you know, if they keep telling us net interest margin will improve or net interest income, even if the margin mm-hmm. doesn't improve, that's important to me. But, I mean, to Tim's point, in terms of being conservative with their capital, if you're Jamie Dimon, you're saying it could be Superstorm Sandy. Mm-hmm then you are going to be conservative with your capital. And he indicated that already, but you wonder how much more he would ratchet up that warning uh, come next conference call. Yeah, my sense he's not going to ratchet that up. I think he probably went as far out the curve as he wants to be. I don't want to speak from obviously. That would surprise me. With that said... Yeah, it's about risk and how much risk you're willing to take. But then you look at a Goldman Sachs, for example, quickly, that's trading now at this 285 level at seven and a half times next year's numbers, right around book value in an environment where I think we all realize 
their fixed income currency and commodities is probably crushing it. Now, they won't get rewarded for that necessarily, but I think at these levels, into earnings beginning middle of July, I think Goldman sets up really well. In terms of the systemic risk, though, how should we think about that, Dan? Because once upon a time, it was the huge spike that we saw in commodities, for instance, yeah. that had us so concerned. That's Back in 1560. Yeah, yeah, no, I, Guy makes actually a really good point about the investment banks and what Goldman is able to do in this mm-hmm. sort of environment. There's a lot of um, some of their peers that don't have those sorts of um, capabilities. And then the other thing is, and Tim just mentioned, is that a lot of those capital market activity, they're done. It's over for the year, right? And so you start thinking about what does 2023 look like um, to me. I, listen, I'll just say this, is that if Jamie Dimon, you know, were to change his tune, okay, just a few weeks after he changed his tweet, tune from a couple months earlier... Do you understand? It's not a good look here, especially if we know how early we are in sort of the economic data starting to slow here. I mean, that's my personal view. So I think he'll likely take a cont- listen. Their earnings are coming quick. They're July 14th. You know, you know, and we're like almost the end of the quarter here. So, um, you know, again, I think it really comes down to expectations. If the stock were to go much lower, then the stock probably rallies out of it. Um, and the whole group probably does. But if it rallies in a quarter end, I think that's a tough setup because their visibility is going to be really poor for the yeah. second half. Let's get more on the stress test and the bank trade with RBC Capital's Gerard Cassidy. He's the head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy and the large cap bank analyst. Uh, Gerard, any surprises, any questions that still remain in your head? No, actually, the results came in uh, quite nicely. Uh, Once again, the industry, as you opened up in your segment, is very resilient. Uh, They have enormous amounts of capital to handle a really severe downturn. And one of the major risks that we hear from investors today is that they're worried about credit losses going higher. And what this test shows us that unlike in 08 and 09, when 18 out of the 20 largest banks cut or eliminated their dividends, that's not going to happen this time. These banks are well capitalized. The dividends are going to be safe through the downturn. And I think that's going to show up as people start to realize that. Gerard, it's Karen. Thanks for being on today. Uh, as, a, as a long-suffering, I guess, bank holder, what do you think it will take to get the sentiment around these bank stocks to to lift? Oh, you're, you're, Karen, you're spot on about the sentiment. It's it's quite negative. I've been in Boston all week visiting with investors. They're either apathetic or they just don't want to move into the banks. And the inflection point we are looking for is net interest income growth. People don't realize that rising interest rates, you touched on it in your comments, Karen, about the margin expansion. You are going to see amazing numbers. We're forecasting Bank America could have 15 to 20% revenue growth this year in net interest income because of the rise in rates. So I think what investors need to see is that as this revenue growth comes in better than expected, especially in the third quarter, when you're going to have the full impact of the July Fed funds rate increase as well as the June that we just had, it's going to be very powerful. And at the same time, people are going to see that the credit quality for the banks, they have de-risked these balance sheets because of what we're talking about today, the stress test. The real risk is outside the banking system. So I think once people realize the credit is not that bad and the revenue growth is real strong, that changes the sentiment, hopefully in the latter part of the second half of this year. Jordan, I think you were listening to the beginning of the show. We mentioned Deutsche Bank being down 11 percent, 52-week low. You know, the Eurozone collectively, the largest economy on the planet. Obviously, Germany, I think the fifth largest. Not an insignificant bank. I'm not asking about Deutsche Bank, but how worried should we be that there's potentially something more there? It's interesting because obviously, you know, Deutsche Credit Suisse have been struggling for years. Both those companies have had challenges that are somewhat unique to them. 
But there's always, you know, the worry that there could be, you know, the, the second derivative risks to other banks, counterparty risks. But that's what this stress test does, as you guys know. It takes not just into account the losses in credit cards or commercial real estate, but it takes into account trading losses and counterparty risk losses. And that's what's so, um, I think, positive about these results is that all our banks come through it. Yes, they're going to have lower earnings, no doubt about it, in a severe scenario as described by the Fed, but they come through it with healthy capital. But yes, when you see stocks settle off like that, as you point out, Guy, it, it is really something to keep an eye on. Um, especially in, with a bank that large. So, Gerard, it's Tim. Have banks therefore priced in at least the, the expectations in the same way that the market has on recession? And again, I'm talking about credit quality and places where banks are going to have to reserve. Um, what do you think about valuations right here relative to the environment you see? Yeah, no, I think you're right. They have priced in definitely some part of a recessionary environment with higher credit losses. The valuations look to us to be attractive. Now, they're not as cheap as they were March 23rd, 2020, and I'm not suggesting we're going to get that low, but they're off the highs that we saw in January when the banks, as you guys know, month to date in January, the index was up 13% and has obviously come off dramatically since then. But when you look at bank stocks trading at just above book value on average, or 1.5 times tangible, they start to get interesting, especially if we hit this inflection point, as Karen and I were talking about, that, that you can really see you know, people coming back into the stocks. Their under-owned sentiment is obviously not positive. And I think at these valuation levels, yes, there's limited downside from here. But I think as people realize the banks are just not going to have the credit issues that they had in 08, 09, that that's, a, that's going to be the real rallying point for owning these names. And that's a benefit of the stress test, Gerard. It really gives us a snapshot into how these banks will perform in such downturns. Um, but just can you give us some historical context in terms of what the stocks have done in past recessions? Sure. I mean, when you look at 1990 and 2008-9, the bank stocks were hit extremely hard. They traded down to respective, uh, respectively approximately 50 percent of book in 1990 and about 43 percent of book in uh, 2008, 2009. In 2001, which is what we're thinking this is going to look like, the banks never broke book value. You know, the problems in 2001 were the dot-com implosion. It was a financial problem, not a credit problem. And that's what we think is going to happen this time. It's the problems are outside the banking industry. You know, the Fed with QT, they created such an asset bubble with QE. Now they're deflating it. So the problems are going to be in the financial markets more so than we believe, more so than in credit. It's, we don't think it's a credit debacle that's going to get us this time. It's going to be more the deflationary asset prices that Chairman Powell talked about yesterday in, in, in front of Congress. Gerard, great to get your tank take. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Gerard Cassidy, RBC. Tim, what's a trade here? Well, I, I, I think money center banks, first of all, within this sphere of banks and insurance companies look the most interesting because I think they're actually the most defensive. I'm worried about some of the interest rate sensitivity on the regionals. I'm worried about some of the credit exposure with some of the consumer finance companies. And a lot of those companies are painted with a high multiple brush. So, um, I, again, I would look at a price to tangible book in a Bank of America uh, around 1.1, very attractive, back down near those levels that you've talked about with a company that, to me, has the most exposure across the core businesses. I realize mortgage exposure is one of these things that has been a major tailwind for these banks. Bank of America is right there. But I think of the of the money center banks, that's the one that has the most balance in the value. is the cheapest. You know, it's interesting, right? 
we're just kind of the early cycles of this, right? The stock market like topped out in January, right? So here we are, we've just six months into it. And we know that large parts of the market have been topping out. But when you put it all together, you think about the likelihood that housing is going to do like a similar sort of turn that we had in the S&P 500. Maybe it's down 10, 20 percent or something. That activity is already going to slow down. You think about a lot of these other places where some of these money center banks do. It just doesn't seem like a great environment. So you can talk about how cheap they are. You know, you just said you're a long-suffering bank. I'd rather go with like a Goldman where, where, where Guy just mentioned that they're going to trade their way out of this. I mean, like, really, if you think about it, and then they'll be well set up. If at some point in 2023, a lot of that capital markets activity comes back, right? If the IPO windows open, if we start seeing M&A. I mean, that's what they're really good at. So to me, I don't find the money centers that interesting right now. No matter what spread you're focused on for net interest margins, it just doesn't seem like a good environment right now. I mean, Karen, you, you mentioned sentiment, and that's the banks have been wrapped up so much in just negative sentiment toward them. If there is a recession, do you, I mean, that, that's not going to be good for sentiment no, in any I, yes, way. Yes, I don't imagine the sentiment will lift. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yes, I, I agree with you there. I do think, though, if we are in a recession, I think that what's going to work in the market, so not the high flyers, I don't mm -hmm. think those are going to work. And ultimately, I think there's a place for value. And if you look at some of the value ETFs, some of the biggest exposure they have is banks right. because they are the cheapest. And with the, you know, the, the security that they have now, given how strong their balance sheets are, I don't think this is going to anything, nothing remotely like 08-9. Yeah, I mean, J.P. Morgan down 35% from that high we made just as Dan point. I mean, that's a pretty historic move to the downside. Again, just to reiterate, I do think Goldman can trade. You think about what's taken place in this quarter specifically, some of the trading activity, it all lines up for what Goldman Sachs done. Now, will they get rewarded for that? I think they will post earnings, not for the long run, though. Coming up, we're all over the after-hours action in FedEx. Shares on the move after the company reported results. A conference call is underway. We'll bring you the numbers next. And Treasury yields taking a big leg lower. But what does that move mean for stocks? We'll break down the real money impact. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert here on FedEx. Shares are higher by 2% after the company posted an increase in earnings and revenue and delivered strong guidance. Frank Hollins got the latest from the conference call. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Melissa. Well, FedEx moving higher on better than expected guidance in the first earnings call for new CEO Raz Subramaniam. Very optimistic considering some of the commentary on the call. Four-year EPS guidance of 2250 to 2450 above the estimates of 2050 to 2150. The results overall, they were somewhat mixed despite that EPS beat. Expressing ground revenues and margins were below estimates. Freight was really the standout here. On the call, Supermanium said this about headwinds. We have worked through many network inefficiencies caused by labor shortages. Although wage rates remain higher than this time last year, they are stabilizing. Still, COVID-related conditions slowed global recovery and pressured second-half performance. 
Pricing power was also a concern with the global slowdown and also some of those geopolitical pressures, but FedEx reported double-digit increases for both Express and for ground. Melissa? Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. Uh, Karen, you own this one. I do. Uh, I like what they're saying about the guidance. Uh, a tiny miss on EPS, tiny miss on revenue, but uh, they seem to be getting those yield numbers on the packages are really good. That's I like that. They did do an aggressive buyback. Uh, they still have more to do in a buyback. I, th- I want to hear what they say on the call. The calls are you get some nuance there. To be honest, I am a shareholder, but sometimes they've been a little bit of an overpromiser mm-hmm. under deliver. Oh. So I like that the range is even higher than consensus. Uh-huh. And I hope that they feel like we feel so good about our business well, that we can conservatively. Guy, right? Well, he's been kind of the guy yeah. for a while. So I, hopefully this is a, a either promise and deliver or under promise and over deliver. Right. That would be great. Frank mentioned freight, which was excellent. Operating margins much better. The problem, of course, is it's only 12% of their overall revenue. Express is where basically you got to boil this down to how they do there. And it wasn't bad. The operating margins were not as bad as I thought they would be. Now you start doing the math 10 times-ish. You even go midpoint in next year's numbers with maybe 10 11% EPS growth. That starts to make sense. And then you add in this D.E. Shaw thing, which I'm certain people are starting to talk about. I think that's a bit of a tailwind as well. So I think you can continue to own this stock here. I'll go to the other shareholder on the panel tonight, Tim. Yeah, so the, the D.E. Shaw factor Guy refers to, I, I think, is really important. And, and you know, they, they, in those headlines, talked about some costs related to business optimization. I, I think this is a company that's focused on being a lot more efficient, not spending on everything they need to spend. I also think that there could be surprise, some surprise tailwinds in terms of their margins, especially because shipping costs could be coming down somewhat. And, and I think they still have that pricing power. So that's a mix that does very well for them. And then back to the stock, I, I, you, know, you have to look at FedEx has outperformed the S&P by 30% since April. Um, Some of this is off of, again, a very oversold base, but there have been moments where FedEx has very much led this market. I'm not ready to call uh, Dow theory here, but but I do think if you look at FedEx from May of 2020 to December of 2020, it outperformed the S&P by 100%. uh, And that was a period where markets had a huge shot in the arm. So you have to watch this. It's done this before and it's doing it now. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Treasury yields taking a nosedive as Wall Street weighs recession risks. The impact it could have on your portfolio next. Plus, flying out of New Jersey? Maybe not. United slashing its flights through its Northeast hub. So buckle in. The traders are flying into the airline trade next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to Fast Money. Treasury yields tumbling today. The benchmark 10-year Treasury trading around two-week lows on fears the Fed could cause a recession. CNBC on-air editor Rick Santelli is following the action for this Chicago CME. Rick, it's always great to see you, particularly on Fast Money. Um, and it just seems like the, the volatility that we've seen in the bond market seems extraordinary. I don't know, can you put it into context? And why do you think we're seeing such whipsaw swings in yields? Well, I think one of the main reasons of late 
is not only the recession talk domestically, but globally. And sticking to that global premise, I do believe that Europe in a large part, especially Germany after the 14th, when the big valve of the gas, nat gas from Putin, starts to get cranked a little tighter, is really almost leading the market. And, and I'll tell you what I mean. Okay, now let's look at a couple charts. Here's a three-day chart of two-year no yields. And obviously you could see we've lost a lot of ground. The more recessionary talk we hear globally, the more rates are going down and a flight to safety for good credit. You see the same thing with a 10-year. But here's where it gets interesting. Yes, the chairman talked in front of both sides of the aisle the last 36 hours. And as much as he was hawkish, look at Boone yields. Okay, this is Boone yields today. Long before the chairman took his microphone, they moved from 165 down into the 140s. And I think that's key because I think all of a sudden we are starting to see many of the uh, issues in Europe come home to roost in the marketplace. And that's having an effect on us. You could see it in the Boone tenure spread. And finally, it's not only having an effect on us, as hawkish as the chairman was, look at these Fed fund futures for the last three days. They're up 22 ticks from their low closing yield. That means less Fed in the marketplace and the market gets what it wants. Rick, not that I want to necessarily do this to you, although I really do. And I'm, I'm loving the fact that you're here and I'm going to wind you up. I thought one of the many mandates of uh, the Federal Reserve were stable prices. When 10-year yields move 48 basis points in effectively three and a half, four days, that's anything but stable. And that's not anecdotal. That's been going on for the last year and a half. So I don't know where they want stability because it's clearly not in the bond market, which should be the most liquid asset on the planet. I couldn't agree more. And I'll take it a step farther since you did wind me up a bit. You know, many believe that the chairman was very frank and hawkish the last couple of days. But in a way, he got under my skin, especially when they asked what he thought about some of the fiscal policies and legislation past, present and future. And he basically said, hey, I stick to my own knitting here, which really goes against the grain of what he said from about March 2020 to the end or mid-2021, when he was in essence begging for more fiscal additives inside the economy. I guess what I'm getting at here is the market is unmoored for a very good reason, because policy was unmoored and the Fed was the enabler. You can't spend too much money, you can't print too much money, unless of course the Fed condones some of the big spending policies of the administration. Eric, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Uh, this probably won't wind you up, but I'll ask it anyway. The tightening, that the, the QT part of it, we haven't fully seen that in full effect yet. How much do you think that will destabilize the markets, the bond markets? Well, I think it will. Yeah, I think it's going to. And I think that the bond market ride's going to stay volatile. But I think at the end of the day, the end of the day, I see inflation in many ways has peaked. Commodity inflation, in my opinion, already peaked. The issue isn't whether it peaks. I think that's going to be a war of words down the road. The issue is the rate of change may go to zero, but prices most likely in many of the stickiest parts of the inflationary areas are going to remain very sticky. And what looks like inflation hasn't kept up with respect to, or wages haven't kept up to inflation, ultimately, wages are going to be sticky even when inflation starts to come down. And that's going to create the next headache for the Fed. Rick, thank you so much. Great to see you. Thanks, Melissa. Rick Santelli joining us from Chicago. Well, bond yields may have been down today, but stocks were up. The Nasdaq rising about a percent and a half. Long term, though, 
And I don't know if you want to call it a game mm. or not a game. Oh. We're going to ask this question. Are falling bond yields and bond yields that are falling this precipitously uh-huh. good or bad for stocks? Karen, what do you think? I think good to the mm-hmm. extent that bond yields are falling because inflation is coming down. And to the extent that inflation going up was, we saw what that did, the reversal of that, I think, to me, good. Okay, yeah, green thumbs up. Do you think that bond yields are falling now because inflation is coming down? I think there is the perception that inflation Uh is peaking. And we've seen, I mean, we talk about, you know, the different commodities. Tim talks about just yesterday, all the commodities, lumber and um, I think copper and Mm -hmm. gas, oil. Right. All all of those seem to have turned at the moment. Tim, what do you say then? Well, I, I feel like you changed the game on me as you, as you said long term. I don't remember if that was part of the question that was asked originally. But anyway, I'll, I'll answer the question and I'll say bad. Um, I think ultimately we know that the first derivative or the first brain cell, ooh, yes, um, is, is that it, it really is a sign today of EU PMIs that were back to COVID lows. EU, uh, sorry, U.S. Uh, manufacturing this morning, 52.1. Uh, you know, you're not too far away from contraction. The manufacturing portion of that was lower. Uh, we've gotten data points over the last three weeks. Um, so, uh, you know, this is rates going lower because people are more concerned about the economy. Let's be clear. Um, Fed funds rate went from 370 down to 340. Um, but ultimately, that is good for stocks, right? So I'm not going to hedge my answer. I'm going to say negative. Uh, but I do think that yields going down, and Karen mentioned inflation, um, that's a good reason. But ultimately, we're going down right now because people are worried about the economy. Yeah. So since we're all playing choose your own adventure, so why should I be any different? <laughs> I think in the short term, it's going to be good. And I think if you want, again, anecdotal evidence, today is everything you need to know. Look at the outperformance of the NASDAQ, mm-hmm. theoretically the most interest rate sensitive names. And I think that's going to continue for the foreseeable future, meaning the next three or four weeks. Long term, I think it's really bad that rates are going down because it speaks to a significant slowdown and earnings are going to take a bath on the back of that Melms. ARC was up 7% today, so good for certain parts of the market in a big way. Uh, Dan? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, if you look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield over the last 40 years, but let's just focus on 2020, you know, we, it was above 6% in the year 2000. Um, when we topped out in 2007, it was lower than that. When we topped out in 2018, it was three and a quarter percent. We just topped out. You know, my, my point is r- rates are never going up meaningfully, and, and, you know, unless the sovereigns around the globe are able to reduce the size of their balance sheets because they can't service all this debt. So we just had this spike from basically zero to three and a half percent in the 10 year or whatever we were 50 bips at the low and i suspect it comes back down into trend and that's fine for stocks coming up garden state grounded the cuts united airlines is making to ease travel delays and what it means for travel stocks and speaking of flying we've got a fast pitch coming your way our next guest has a stock in the space she says has some heat to it the name when fast money returns Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a buzzkill for you. Shares of United Airlines losing altitude today. Starting next week, the carrier will cut about 12 percent of daily flights from Newark Airport in an effort to reduce delays that have disrupted travel plans this year. Um, Tim, what do you make of this? It seems on the surface like bad news, but actually it could be good for the airline. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the story for the airline industry is really trying to get back on two feet from a staffing and a labor perspective. Uh, demand right now is fine. Uh, I, I think we've heard everyone from United to Delta uh, talk about profitability levels and where they are relative to 2019. And for those that didn't splurge on debt and dilute the balance sheet or dilute the equity, I should say, uh, and impair the balance sheet, I think it's a good story. I, I Look, the disconnect in airlines is something I've been talking about for a month. Um, and during that month, they've probably gone down 10 to 15 percent since I liked them you know, higher up here. But again, the dynamics around labor and getting back to work uh, in the airline industry, I don't think are indicative of demand. You look at Airbnb, and I know you know this, Melm, so I'm pointing it out before you pointed it out to me, but that was the A in the Dawn, Dawn trade. yes, I remember And this Dawn was like really. $158 <laughs> stock at the time. I think it made a new all-time low today, I think. Don't at me if I'm wrong, but it was damn close. And it's almost as if people are trading like it's going out of business. I thought the quarter in early May was actually really good. Apparently, the street doesn't think so. I think JMP Securities just downgraded the name as well. So, I don't know. My sense is there are going to be some bargains out there. I thought it was a bargain at 150, so almost by definition, I should think it at 94. All right, let's stick with the airspace uh, space. Our next guest says one aircraft leasing company could be ready for takeoff. Franklin Templeton's Katrina Dudley joins us now for a fast pitch. So, Katrina, you're taking a look at AirCap. What do you like about it? Look, it's a $9 billion Irish-based aircraft leasing. And in this type of business, the company doubled its scale last year when it acquired the GCAS leasing business. And this is a business where scale and economies of scale really matter. Um, when you get big, you become more important to your airline customers and you have a much more diversified fleet you can offer to lease to them. And you also become much more important to the aircraft manufacturers. And that's important, particularly when we're supply constrained. Um, if we take a look at their balance, Balance sheet. Yes, they have debt. It's secured debt. It's it's debt that's levered. It's against a secured asset that they're renting out and earning really good yields on. And then finally. Aircap is really well positioned in terms of it has a young fleet and it has 460 new orders of aircraft and 90% of those are highly new technology aircraft and they're the aircraft that these airlines need. So you talk about what happened today at United, we are really positive about those capacity cuts to the extent that airline capacity is scarcer. A lot of the airline cuts have been in the regional part of the market and that's not where Aircap plays. They play in the narrow bodies, they play a bit in the wide bodies, but they are a really good partner to these airlines. And to the extent the airlines have had a rough time over the last couple of years, particularly post the pandemic, um, those losses on their balance sheet mean that they cannot raise further debt that they need to invest in their fleet in order to reduce the emissions and deliver the excess capacity to their customers. And that's where aircraft leasing comes in. So we think it's a great space. Talk about valuation. You may be talking about United United Airlines trading cheap. I've got a secured airline business that we think can earn, you know, low to mid-teens ROE that's trading at 65% of its book value. We see the stock as an easy double. And if you want to get optimistic and we see a little bit of multiple appreciation to say 1.2 times book, this thing's a triple in the next three years, which is why we like Aircap. Hi, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Hey, I love the accent, by the way. So the question, though, <laughs> is... Do you, how much exposure do they have to the sort of net jets and those kind of businesses, which seem to me to have uh, peaked in terms of the demand for airlines and, and used aircraft coming onto the market? What's your exposure there? 
So they, 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 they play in the newer part of the aircraft fleet. They don't play in the private jet fleet. Um, so they're not exposed to those net jets. Actually, what's going to happen is those private travelers are more likely to come back into the commercial market. Um, and so that would benefit the airlines and it benefits Aircap as a derivative. So we're not worried about that. Um, the other space where Aircap plays, and it's kind of the hidden gem that they got from GE is in the helicopter space. And with the rising commodity price, is you're seeing a lot more demand for that product. And that's another you know, part of the story that's really overlooked. Katrina, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having Katrina me. Katrina Dudley. All right, it's time to vote. Are you going to buy Katrina's pitch on air cap? Guy, what do you say? So I'm going to turn my smart board around. For me, this is a smart board, as you know. And I'll say that on May 17th, you go back and look at that quarter. It was actually an extraordinary quarter. was not rewarded. Stock has effectively been cut in half since January highs. I like what she's pitching there, Melms. Dan? Uh, not my ballywick. And I'm not a buyer. You know, she talked about all that debt here. And this is a $9 billion, um, you know, equity value. It's got a billion and change in uh, cash, but it's got nearly $49 billion in debt. And she said it's all secured. I get it. She knows this company inside and out. I'm just saying in this environment, I'm not sure that's particularly interesting to me. If you think there's potentially credit issues on the often. Karen? Well, when I heard the word air, I thought, no way would I like it, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I didn't hate it. So I don't know. I passed, but I thought it was a good pitch. Interesting. I like the detail. I like the pitch, but it's not for me. So you like the pitch, but you pass on the stock. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Tim? Uh, look, I love the Irish, and, and I'm a buyer. <laughs> and, and ultimately, what I heard are a couple things. First of all, that, my guy refers to that May quarter. Those are great numbers. They took an impairment charge. They talked about actually demanding the twin aisle planes. Uh, and I actually think that this is a stock that's been totally nailed because people are worried about the low capital cost environment changing. Their business hasn't changed. It's very cheap here. The traders have spoken, but it is your turn out there watching you viewers out there. Are you buying Katrina Dudley's fast pitch on air cap? Head on over to at CNBC Fast Money on Twitter to vote. Bringing the results right after the show. Coming up, shares of Schlumberger losing energy today. What are the options pits predicting? We'll drill down into the trade next. Plus, brace for some big reshuffling. Meta, Netflix, and PayPal making their move to a new home tomorrow. Bringing the details next. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out WTI crude falling again today, closing at its lowest level since May 10th. Oil prices now down about 15 percent from their highs of the month. One options trader is officially calling an end to the rally. Tony Zhang joins us with the action. Tony. Yeah, so Schlumberger down almost 7% here today, traded fairly actively about two times the average daily volume, and one single trade accounted for nearly 15% of the volume in this particular name, where a trader sold 4,000 contracts of the September 37.5 calls and 4,000 contracts of the September 42.5 calls, collecting a net credit of about $2.76 across these two trades per share. We've seen a lot of trades like this from institutional investors over the past few days and the past few weeks, likely tied to an equity position that has a market value of somewhere around $28 million as of today's close really exchanging any further upside here for names like this in exchange for, in this particular case, about 7% of the stock's value in income over the next three months. So seeing fairly limited upside and, and, and wanting uh, short-term income in exchange for that. 
guy. You like SLB? I do. But look, the OIH is down 31 percent in like six trading days. It's remarkable. 317 to 221. Obviously, Schlumberger, a big portion of that, equally down about 30 percent from its recent high of, I think, almost 50 bucks. On valuation, you have to love it. But then you have to say to yourself, it seems like people are selling first, asking questions later, like this trade is done. I don't think it is. I think you can own Schlumberger in earnings mid-July. The underperformance of these Schlumberger, but though IH versus the commodity itself, this is as wide as it's been in quite some time. Not that it can't get wider, but it's yeah. gigantic. Right. Tony, thanks. Tony Zhang for more options action. Tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, from growth to value, three big tech names making their way into a major value benchmark. The details next, and there's still time to vote on Katrina's fast pitch. Are you out there buying air cap? Head on over to Twitter at CNBC Fast Money to cast your vote. And throughout June, we are celebrating Pride Month. Your CNBC senior executive producer, Ray Parisi. No matter who you are or where you're from, personal and professional success is built on a foundation of confidence and self-worth. And for so many LGBTQ plus youth, that foundation has been cracked by shame, discrimination, and hate. That's why pride is so important. It's visibility, voice, and power. And those are things we should celebrate 365 days a year. Welcome back to Fast Money. A couple of one-time high-growth names are set to make a big move tomorrow. Meta, Netflix, and PayPal are among the names to be added to the Russell 1000 value index at the close of trade. They're also uh, be in the growth index, but their weightings will be reduced. So is this the new face of value investing? Tim, I mean, it's really a sign of the times in terms of what has gone on in the markets. This is uh, like this is not a badge of honor for these companies, but 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 again, the the, the valuations have priced in uh, a lot of this. I think for all three of them, I, I would say Meta, it, it's it's the one that's the most palatable. Um, not just because we've digested a, a low multiple on Facebook for a long time or Meta, but I, I actually think it, it, it gets it more into that commoditized business, which they have. I mean, they have a recurring business model. They have stability of their platform. And, and ultimately, that's not a bad thing. I, I think we struggled with other issues at Facebook. Maybe there's some cyclicality here, uh, but that's the one that makes the most sense. And on valuation, we've talked about this, uh, I feel like, almost all week. And, and, and it's almost hard not to get excited by six times EV EBITDA. Uh, the Netflix story to me, which I'm long, and I, I certainly was long for a, from a higher number, but I, I think the story there is still one of growth. Um, it may not be so much in, in the U.S., but I think the international growth story is still there. Um, I think the revenue growth story there. I think they still have pricing power. I'm sorry, what's the name of the index? The value, value Okay, I thought it was going to yeah. be something else entirely, <laughs> like doghouse or something. I mean, I agree with Tim completely on the meta story. I know Dan will be like, have at it. I've got you it. bought it I'm today. Long. Did you? Wait, bought you it bought today. meta today? We just talked about this That's last night. Adorable. We laid it all out. But here's uh, the thing. I, I honestly think that we have 20% downside over the next, let's call it, six uh-huh. months. I think you have a double or triple over the next few years or something like that. That's just my quick take. So, again, that is value. We laid out the case. If 2023 estimates are anywhere near correct, this is the yes. cheapest you'll ever have an opportunity did, to buy meta. Did our whole discussion about meta yesterday. I convinced you guys. 
What do you mean? What are you talking about? I'm the one, I, I, I spoke before you did. Okay. okay no, but here's the thing. Have. I actually think this group, what, what Tim just said about all these names, and I think PayPal. I bought PayPal last month. I bought a little bit more today. Again, it's trading about two and a half times. Next year's expected sales. Mid-teens expected EPS and sales growth, trading where it is, down almost 80%. I mean, they, they are value. Forget of how much they're down. Think about right. what their opportunities are going forward and their current installed bases and their ability to build on that. Think about Netflix quickly. Trading 15 times next year's numbers wow. with two and a half times revenue. I mean, it is value at this point. Yeah. Karen, were you going to say? Sorry. Yeah, there's no more. I mean, Meta's value. I'm, uh, so Dan halved at it. That was interesting. Okay, good. We're in this together. <laughs> he had at it. Or whatever the past tense is. <laughs> Coming up, there's just a few minutes left to vote for Katrina's fast pitch. Are you buying AirCap? Head on over to Twitter at CNBC Fast Money to vote. The results and final trades are next. Welcome back. Time to find out if you are buying Katrina Dudley's fast pitch on AirCap. Just going to keep it plain and simple. You were not. Uh, 73% said no. 27% said yes. But she did a good job. It was a nice She did a great job. Yes. It's a hard sell. Right. Yeah. Didn't quite work. Uh, Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, I thought Katrina would have been walking on sunshine. See what I did there? But in the meantime, Delta belongs in that value club. D-A-L, six times next year. I think that is value territory. Karen Feinerman. Speaking of value territory and Dan on board, I got to go with Meta. How could I not? Because Dan's on board? Well, I I own it. They were added to this value thing, the doghouse club, and even Dan sees value there. All right. Danny. I think it's really important that seeing these three stocks that were poster childs for the bull market yeah. going into a value index. So that's why I think they're kind of looking kind of interesting. And to me, PayPal is interesting. So is huh. Mel, you think nice. the Knicks make a move in the draft tonight, up or down? What are your thoughts? Up. Yeah, that's amazing. You see, <laughs> read my mind so often. Well, I bet you knew that I was going to say Qualcomm is too cheap here as well. I did. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Meantime. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.